0: MP.
1: welcome to talk the talk i'm bill newman buzz eisenberg is off we are joined because it is monday and it's mayor's monday here on talk the talk and whmp and we have with us this monday the mayor of greenfield roxanne Wiedergartner. madam Me- madam mayor thank you so much for being with us here i am sloughing over our alliteration goodness gracious mayor's monday oh. mayor Weidengartner. thank you so much for being with us an election is coming up two weeks from tomorrow, yeah. November 7th. You stand for re-election in Greenfield. What are your reflections? What is your perspective on the election as we get close to the finish line?
2: Well, the finish line is, as you said, very close. We continue to, in essence, work our plans. So um, I, we're going to work right up to the end. Uh, the, when I say we, I mean the campaign um, committee and so we have mailings going out. We have uh, we're out there on the corners on Saturdays uh, along with um, my opponent and her crew. I, I'd say we are both working very hard uh, to win this election. So um, I'm proud of the record I have and I'm looking forward to winning.
1: What are the major issues that voters are talking to you about and that have come out in the course of the campaign and or the debates?
2: You know, it's a little difficult to tell. I think school funding is definitely one of them. Um, Economic development is another one. Housing. Housing is an issue. Um, These are the things that, you know, a lot of communities in Massachusetts, including Western Massachusetts are, are interested in, um, infrastructure. So, uh, it's not sexy, but you know, the stuff that's underground as well as above ground. So those are the things that seem to be on people's minds right now.
1: What about the police, which is, which has been a topic of uh, debate and, uh, controversy, uh, over the past few years. Where does that stand in terms of the hierarchy of concerns of voters as far as you can tell?
2: Well, I think the overwhelming majority of uh, people in Greenfield voters uh, for sure is um, that we have a fully staffed, fully funded and functioning police department Um, that ever since the budget was cut back in uh, uh, 21 for FY22. Um, and then again this year for FY 23 um, a lot of people in greenfield have expressed their concerns over those budget cuts so four hundred twenty five thousand dollars the first time around and a little over 200 and something this time around so that's that's quite a bit but the police department's been able to rally we did um, a lot of work with the police department with the um, sheriff's department and the state police in order to make sure that our shifts were fully funded when this particular problem was created actually by my opponent and other members of the city council. So that's kind of where we're at with that. Um, as far, we've got some very good news that came out of the police department this this past week. It concerns our um, co-response program which is grant-funded, um, Chief Haig is the chief proponent of that pro- program. He worked very hard for a couple of years, really a little over a year, with uh, Community and Support Off- Options, CSO, to get two uh, behavioral health specialists embedded in the police department so that it's, it's primarily a jail diversion program so that when calls come into the dispatcher, um, they can determine if this is um, a, a mental health issue strictly, if it's also perhaps a, a violence issue of some sort that's connected to a mental health episode, they're trained in, in doing that. So the statistics after that program has been in existence for a little over a year, um, we finally had enough information that we could get some statistics on that. So I'm, I'm happy to share those with you if you want me to right now.
1: I would like to know about the success or at least the metrics that have measured the effect of this dual response program. Yes, please.
2: Yeah, sure. So um, in uh, since the beginning of this year, uh, so 2023, the dispatchers have sealed 11,660 calls for service, Um, and roughly 641 or about 5.5% of those were mental health or behavioral health related. Um, 349 of those calls were actually diverted um, to basically um, just the people, instead of sending them to jail or taking them to jail they were diverted uh, directly to behavioral health services, um, so there was no direct police involvement in that. So I think those are, are um, there's, you know, still some work to do, but I think the um, that particular program, as I said, which was conceived of by uh, Chief Robert Haig, and he worked hard to find the grant. Um, it's... Funded by a, um, a Massachusetts—well, I actually think it's, it says what it is—a Massachusetts Jail Diversion Program grant, and he sought out CSO and worked with them to, to get that program in place. So obviously the, the police department would rather not be in the mental health business, but unfortunately they often are.
1: Does this uh, dual-response uh, Program from the Greenfield Police involve the police and a social worker or a mental health professional going out together, or is it up to the dispatcher to determine who should respond to a given call? How does it work?
2: It's a little bit of both of those. So just to be clear, this program uh, is funded to support Greenfield, Deerfield, and Montague, so it's a three-town program the overwhelming number of calls come in from Greenfield. And so um, two full-time licensed clinicians are actually embedded with the police department and uh, co-respond on calls for all three departments um, with um, with daily coverage. That's basically how it works. Some of those calls, um, they were partnered with police officers, In other cases, through whatever the you know whatever the dispatchers are hearing, they can simply send out the social worker uh, to uh, answer the call. And then, if that person needs feels that they need backup, they have the ability to do that, and they call for backup if they need
1: it. This program you just mentioned, Mayor, is a grant funded program. Is there a an end date for the grant, and is there a plan for it to continue as part of the Greenfield budget?
2: You asked two very good questions, of which one I can answer.
1: <laughs> okay, one for two from my point of view, that's pretty good.
2: That's not bad, one out of two. I don't know the end date on that. If I did once upon a time, I have forgotten it. Um, so I don't know if it's a two year grant, a three year grant, whatever. We have another grant where we were able to get police officers, new police officers on board. But um, And uh, the intent is, yes, to use this data and show the success of the program in order to then continue it as part of the regular policing program in our budget. So um, that's certainly the chief's intent and and my intent, and I think CSO would support that as well.
1: Uh, Mayor Weider-Gardner, Gardner, you mentioned the chief, Robert Haig, who was the uh, focus of a lot of criticism after the civil judgment came down against the police department in the city, uh, having mm-hmm. to do with a discriminatory hiring, as the jury founded. Uh, is the chief still a focal point for uh, uh, Greenfield residents, and is his continuation as chief is that an issue in this campaign your campaign for reelection
2: I think people have tried to make it an issue but I think uh, you know the chief has well this is that particular programs one very good example of that uh, of the work that he did prior to the court case and the continuation and dedication that the police department in general has towards that work and I'm talking about the co-response program. So I think, again, for the vast majority of people in Greenfield, um, Police Chief Haig is not a focal point in the campaign. The um, My opponent has tried to make it a focal point, um, and I, I quite frankly can't gauge that there has been a great deal of success in that. Um, it's not something that I hear about. And in, in talking to a few people um, that I've talked to as I've gone through, they, they immediately express support for the police department and um, the chief at this point in time and the way that the city has, has attempted to handle it. So two Hague is on the job. The court case is, um, you know, making its way through the appeals court at the state level. And quite frankly, that, you know, that whatever is the outcome of that is, I think, will determine, um, you know, the fate and the future of, of our police chief. But right now, he's on the job and uh, and continuing to do this work that he set in motion. Mayor. And lead his, yeah,
1: I'm sorry. Did you want to add to
2: that? No, I just said he's continuing to also, you know. Do, do the work that he's required to do as a police chief and to lead his department. Um, and another good example of that is the uh, the Department of Justice grant that we got. Um, that was through the assistance of, um, you know, the um, command staff and our our uh, deputy chief as well. So, the command, the uh, command staff, and I'm talking about sergeants and so forth in this particular case. Um, Lieutenant Dodge and um, Bill Gordon and Chief Haig all working together to get a Department of Justice Grant to allow us to add additional um, police officers um, in the spring of this year and right now is about the time that uh, some of, a couple of them had to go into uh, had to go to the academy for training and they've worked their way through that others are have been on the job. So is, is is the
1: police department fully staffed at this point?
2: I would say yes. Yes. Yeah. I would say so. Reasonably. So I I say that because there's always injuries. There's always uh, vacations. Um, We have a couple of our senior police officers um, have been out on, on injury. Um, Those things just kind of go with the territory. So, Fully staffed is sometimes a moving target, so to speak, in the both in the police and the fire department for for all the same reasons. Really, you know, generally injuries or and are time the, off.
1: Are the Greenfield police now covering all the shifts? Yes, they are. We are speaking with the mayor of Greenfield, Roxanne Wiedergartner. When we come back, i want to ask about the large number of immigrants being housed, recent immigrants being housed in Greenfield, and I want to ask whether, if she were to be reelected, if this will be her final term. We'll be right back.
0: <clears throat> You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz
1: Eisenberg. Art and history, material objects that tell a story, porcelain, silk, pearls. In Sally Wen Mao's new collection of poems, The Kingdom of Surfaces, these material objects of art frame an important conversation on beauty, empire, commodification, and violence. The Kingdom of Surfaces is a finalist for the Maya Angelou Book Prize. Broadside Bookshop presents author Sally Wen Mao, reading from The Kingdom of Surfaces, this Thursday at seven at the Edwards Church. Following her reading, Sally Wen Mao will join in a conversation with novelist and poet Ocean Huang. The reading is free and open to the public, but space is limited, so reserve your seat now at broadsidebooks.com. Sally Wen Mao, reading from The Kingdom of Surfaces, plus a conversation with Ocean Wong this Thursday at 7 at the Edwards Church, presented by Northampton's independent bookstore, Broadside Bookshop. Here come-
5: Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hwardwhmp.com at or call me at 586 7400.
4: WHMP news, information, and the arts and messages from community nonprofits.
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP.
1: We continue our conversation with Greenfield Mayor Roxanne Wiedergartner, the election for mayor. Her re-election campaign will be decided two weeks from tomorrow, November 7th. She is opposed by Jenny DeSorger, who is a first-term city councillor elected in 2019. Madam Mayor, you mentioned housing in our earlier segment. I'd appreciate mm. if you could tell us the status of the large number of uh, recent immigrants who are being housed in Greenfield. What is that? What does that look like? Is there adequate housing? What arrangements has the city of Greenfield made?
2: Well, the the situation at the day's end uh, is basically a state program. Um, I mean, obviously, we agreed to house them here. Other communities have not agreed um, in various ways. But um, I did, and so they've been there since May, and... ServiceNet is the uh, contractor, so that's the organization that is on the ground day to day. The City of Greenfield provides, um, you know, our, our role is to ensure that the safety and the health of the folks who are out there and the places where and the place where they are. So that's everything from fire safety inspections to uh, regular check-ins um, by the health department, health inspectors, and the health director to ensure that, you know, all the, I guess, I's are dotted and T's are crossed with regard to the safety of the facility that they're in. And we've had one or two sort of, we had a bed bug outbreak that I gathered from people like ServiceNet who run things that, Almost any time you get a large number of people together in the sort of situation that you're in, bed bugs just comes along for the ride. So <laughs> we were able to, I think, uh, quell that. But um, it's a state-run program. Uh, there are some of those folks have been, you know, hired in local businesses. Um, others, they, they must have had their, they already had their work permits fortunately, when they came, so they were able to be hired. I think the, the conundrum that the state is in right now is they want the feds to loosen up the work pro- pro- permit program so that these folks can begin to make a life for themselves here.
1: Well, in that regard, is there a plan for them to be able to move out of the days in and, other, and into other housing?
2: Well, you ask a good question. That is apparently the goal of the Executive Office of Housing and Littleville Communities, with each and every one of these um, these locations that they have. And from time to time, they succeed. They um, are able to move. You know, it's 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 a one-off as a general rule. It's not large numbers of families at one time. It's Perhaps a new, fam- perhaps a family in Greenfield. I believe this was the case recently. I don't know the details, but a family in Greenfield was able, through a friend back in Boston, to secure housing for themselves. So they moved out of the days in and um, and are are in Boston, as far as I know. And I'm, I'm sure that, that once again, that's the state that makes sure that that all went
1: smoothly. Mayor Weedon-Gardner, uh, I'd, I'd like to uh, move on to another topic, if sure. we might. Uh, yeah. Campaigns are about looking forward. So first question in that regard, if you are reelected, will this be your last term?
2: Well, my husband says it'll be my last term. So, yeah, I guess it is.
1: <laughs> and I'm in,
2: making a joke about that. Yes. Um, I, um, I definitely um, want, and you know it, oddly, moving forward is pretty much a tagline of my campaign. I want to be around for another four years to keep Greenfield moving forward to finish some of the projects we started and to start in on, on new ones. So
1: So what are those projects that you say show to the voters? that you deserve re-election and that form your vision for the next four years.
2: Tell us about that. Well, the, definitely finishing up the fire station and that is in, in, in good shape right now. I expect we will move in the early part of 2023. We'll leave the, um, and that's actually quite a production. It sounds like it would be simple, but it isn't. We'll leave the temporary shelters at, um, on Hope Street and move into the new firehouse on Main Street, probably starting right after the first of the year. And it'll probably take up until March to um, to actually get them in the, in the firehouse completely. But so far, so good. Um, it's it's look, shaping up to be a great structure. We, of course, opened the new library. Um, and, um, you know, we have a new skate park. Uh, which is a promise I made when I ran the last time and it's a promise I kept so um, I think that there's that there's certainly the redevelopment of Main Street which we had a major part in um, in assisting financially on that score um, through some money we had available that could only be used for housing and through um, ARPA money so, there's that which, basically, between that and CSO's new um, housing that they're planning over on Wealth Street, able to create 101 new housing units in downtown Greenfield of mixed income, and the, of course, the social, the CSO program is geared towards substance abuse and getting people um, back on track with their lives and situating them in step up, what they call step up housing, I guess.
1: So you're looking at the, the main street uh, uh, improvements, uh, the library, the fire station housing projects, and a few other uh, <laughs> as and you point to those as uh, accomplishments. Uh, are there uh, projects in addition to those that you look that looking forward, you say this is what I'd like to accomplish or may say this more generally, Four years from now, if you are reelected, what would you like to be able to say and point to as being the accomplishment of these four years?
2: A uh, big one is the is an infrastructure program. So MassDOT, quite some time ago, they nothing moves quick in 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 highway infrastructure programs, as you might notice as you're traveling around. So MassDOT has invested about seven, a little over seven million dollars in completely redesigning Main Street and putting in a bike lane and um, <coughs> and new travel lanes, upgrading the um, handicap accessibility um, features at each intersection. That project is scheduled to start sometime in. 2025 I think it does it, the date moves a little bit
1: okay let me ask okay. you about let me it, ask you about one other thing because we are getting short on time uh, sure. is is the uh, school budget on track as far as you're concerned
2: as far as I know it is they are working with the money that they received um, at this point no one was laid off um, and uh, we are in the process of Getting a new superintendent. Uh, the current superintendent has will retire at the end of this year, and um, I was unable to go to that meeting. But um, it was decided that um, her assistant superintendent, Karen Pattonode, would move into the place of superintendent, and that was a vote taken at the school committee meeting a week or more ago, a little over a week ago, I think.
1: As the so, new as the new permanent superintendent. I'm sorry. What? Was she selected as the new permanent superintendent or as an interim?
2: Yes, she, nope, she was selected as the new permanent um, superintendent. Her record, she was, you know, at a, a principal at the high school. She's been the assistant superintendent since um, Dr. DeBarge got there. And um, she lives in Greenfield and, in general, was the overwhelming choice of certainly a lot of parents and community members who wrote to the school committee. I can tell you that. Um, So we're looking forward to having um, Karen Patnode take up the helm and uh, in July. So we will also then go out. um, I believe is the the plan. Um, I'll know probably at the next meeting to um, do a search for an, uh, for an assistant superintendent at this point, but I don't, know that that has been fully decided obviously we're going to need one but how we're getting it i don't know
1: mayor we have a minute left you have an election coming up two weeks from tomorrow you want to give us a final word a final pitch uh for your campaign
2: (laughs) well i want the voters of greenfield to know that i want to be their mayor i love the city i love the job strangely enough and um, I will continue to get stuff done and move Greenfield forward. So I'd look for their vote on November 7th.
1: We leave it there. We've been speaking with mayor, the mayor of Greenfield, Roxanne Wiedegartner. This ha- is and has been Mayor's Monday on WHM- WHMP. Thank you, Madam Mayor, for your time. We really appreciate it. And I'll see if I can get a few words out in a row today without actually garbling them. <laughs>
2: I understand it's that kind of a Monday. I'm having the same problem.
0: This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
3: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The man accused of stabbing a woman in the neck with a set of needle-nose pliers in Northampton pled not guilty. 41-year-old Russell Scott Mayo was arraigned Friday in Northampton District Court. Mayo was accused of stabbing a woman in the neck outside of the Northampton Police Department Thursday afternoon. The Northwestern DA's office filed a motion to have him deemed too dangerous to release on bail. The motion will be considered by a judge on October 27th. The victim is expected to survive. UMass faculty and students are working to alleviate food insecurity and support healthy eating habits through produce prescription programs, linking the medical field to local farms and the food supply chain. Through the program, primary care providers can give eligible low-income participants prescriptions for free, fresh, local produce to be picked up monthly at local health centers. UMass received three $500,000 grants for three years from the USDA to fund the prescription programs. Massachusetts State House is working to update its firearms regulations, and State Rep. Sabadosa said lots of careful consideration and compromise has gone into the House's version of the bill. First of all, the bill is about modernizing firearm
5: laws. Firearm laws in the state are really confusing because they've been updated multiple times, and so the goal was to take all of those laws, streamline them, and make
3: one easy to follow bill. Sabadosa says she expects the Senate will come up with their own amendments. Then the differences will be worked out in a conference committee.
6: For today, look for a mixture of sunshine and clouds. It'll be breezy, highs 56 to 60. Tonight, partly cloudy and chilly. Overnight lows 32 to 36. And then for Tuesday, partly sunny. Highs around 60. I'm 22 News Storm Team meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP.
3: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler.
7: What is the use of a book, thought Alice, without pictures and conversation? And now, let us add, dance. Momix presents Alice, a Momix interpretation of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland that sends you flying down a rabbit hole into a seamless blend of illusion, acrobatics, magic, and whimsy. The UMass Fine Arts Center presents Momix, Alice, Wednesday, October 25th at UMass. It's hard to picture a more imaginative interpretation of Lewis Carroll's story. Momix fills the stage with a marvelously dizzying and inventive flow of movement and activities. Get tickets now at the UMass Fine Arts Center website. Momix, in a new interpretation of Alice, Wednesday, October 25th at UMass.
8: Hello, this is Patrick Kaling, Sheriff of Hampshire County. This year, my office received the prestigious Fatherhood Award from the Children's Trust, a state child abuse prevention agency, for our work with the Nurturing Fathers program. We are proud of our partnership with the Children's Trust and firmly believe that strong, safe families help build strong, safe communities. If you're interested in joining our award-winning team, visit our website, HampshireSheriffs.com, submit an application online, or
4: call and ask for our HR department. Today and every day, millions of people do business with co-ops, food co-ops, credit unions, workers co-ops, energy co-ops, farmer co-ops, Go co-op, and together we can build resilient, inclusive communities.
5: The Monadnock Food Co-op in Keene. 10 years, 4,400 member owners, 135 employees. The Monadnock Food Co-op is Keene's community-owned grocery store. Good local food in downtown Keene. Shop the Monadnock Food Co-op.
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP.
1: On September, I believe the 11th, our community suffered a grievous loss with the passing of Demetria Shabazz. D. Shabazz was an extraordinary member of our community, a political activist, a scholar, a teacher, one of the warmest and most generous people any of us have ever known. There will be a memorial service for D. Shabazz this Thursday at 5.30. Carly Tartikoff, our longtime co-host of Black in the Valley, tell us about that if you would, please.
9: That celebration for D. is going to take place at the Unitarian Church in Amherst at 5.30. Um,
1: this Thursday.
9: This Thursday. At 530. Sorry,
1: At 5.30. At 5.30. Let me turn to uh, Jacqueline Smith-Crooks, the Reverend Dr. Jacqueline Smith-Crooks, uh, Carly Tartikoff's co-host for many years on Black in the Valley and of Black in the Valley. Who was Dee Shabazz? Hmm.
10: It, Dee Shabazz was uh, a very, very special person. Um, she was a welcoming committee to me when I returned to Amherst back in 2004. Uh, Not knowing me from uh, Eve or Adam, as they would say, she came in to let me know that um, she was a communications person as well. And thirdly, uh, she took me back to Louisiana because she had that spirit of not just the Southern spirit, but the womanist spirit, I called Mm -hmm. it which was she cared about everybody. She was a caretaker of the community. Um,
1: and she was a professor. Let me let she, me ask. Yes, you. she
10: was yes. a professor. And, and she, was, she worked that intersection very well. The professional D in communication, she wanted to make sure that people connected with each other, and she was a mother, she was a wife, and she was a caretaker of the spirit of the community. Um, she wanted to make sure that that was maintained. And it was a spirit of connection mm-hmm. and welcoming and doing what needed to be done to let you know that, that, that she was here, not because of who she was, but of, because of what she possessed. And again, I say that woman is spirit. That woman is spirit. Mm-hmm.
1: In that regard, Dee Shabazz served on the board of directors of Amherst Media for a long time. Dan Torres, your reflections on her service for Amherst Media and what she contributed to that organization, among many others?
6: Yeah, that she. Um, I mean, I was a part of Amherst Media um, for years, and that's where I first met her um, and got to know her personally. Her warmth, her caring... Her love for the community, it's, it's one of the first places when she moved out here that she joined was Amherst Media because she wanted to feel like, I want to join and be part of the community. This is a place where I'm going to get to grow and really put her life and soul into that organization. And she really does embody that. I mean, she led it for many years. Mm-hmm. Dee Shabazz, of course, mm-hmm. was on our show on the segment many. Black in many. the Valley many, many
1: times. Uh, one of the shows focused on Amherst Media. Can we play that clip?
9: We're going to talk about the future, but let's start with the past. Where has Amherst Media been? Give us a little history. Well, um,
11: you know, the, the goals and the mission of Amherst Media it's a, a con- community driven, nonprofit, what we call public access uh, station uh, that basically we're changing into. Something as, as public access has changed over the years. Um, we're changing into uh, a media and technology center. And um, what's important about that is that uh, Amherst Media is over 40 years old. Hmm. We're, we're oh. celebrating, I believe, our 42nd year. Um, as a public access station, one of the oldest in the nation, Can longest interrupt running. Can I you
10: briefly? Sure, when, no problem. When, when you use the language, public <laughs> access, um, I, I think I was telling you years ago, I had no idea how public except as, as a viewer. But when you talk about public access, it's more than access to local issues. There's a level of participation that the public can be involved in and they may
11: not even know. Well let's start with what is what is public access. Public access sure (laughs) is um, you know it comes from a federal communications mandate uh, that uh, happened in the nineteen seventies during a time in which people, right, the masses of mm-hmm. people, really wanted to make sure that they had participation mm-hmm. uh, within the media systems. It was a it was an era in which it became very hyper hyper commercialized, and so folks wanted to make sure there wasn't a, mon- a monopoly in terms of uh, mainstream media, and therefore there was this big push uh, for public access. And what that.
1: Dan Torres, there was another show that we did and that Carly and Jacqueline did with uh, Dee Shabazz about Amherst Media, this, but only in part about Amherst Media because it really was her focusing on environmental issues. Mm-hmm. Can, can, we, can we pod that up and hear some of that interview?
9: Today we have as our guests in the studio Dr. Demetria Shabazz from Amherst Media and Dr. Russ Vernon Jones. From coming together. And they're here to talk about a program that they're putting on called Racial and Climate Justice Summer Youth Program, right? Not a camp,
10: it's a workshop. This is something really cutting edge, I, I I think that you're doing. Tell us more about it.
11: Hi. So what we're doing is we're having a workshop that's a two-week-long workshop in July. And,
1: doc- and Dr. Shabazz, if I might, the we is who? Amherst Media? Thank you
11: so much. So uh, Amherst Media along in uh, partnership with Russ Vernon Jones.
4: Go ahead. And Climate Action Now and the Hitchcock Center and the NAACP
6: are also co-sponsors.
11: Thank you this so is quite a community cooperative effort. It is. Well, I think it's going to take that type of effort to educate our youth in the community. And um, we're particularly targeting the intersectionality of race and issues having to do with climate change and climate justice. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fact is that by your zip code, basically, you um, can tell who's going to have longevity in life, and the most health problems. And that is due to the greenhouse gases, of course, being expended into these communities by zip code, poor, Latino, African-American, black and brown communities, uh, and having to do with where incinerators might have be positioned, et cetera, and where waste is collected. Uh, communities of color uh, basically suffer uh, having to do with climate change more than other communities. And could Yes. I, D- uh,
9: Dee understood, and this clip shows us how interconnected life is and how important it is to nurture all of life, to take care of life in all of its forms. And her issues and attention to climate change point to that.
10: And I'd like to piggyback that. Uh, she, Jacqueline Smith Crooks. Yes, it, it was not only in Amherst, though Amherst was a point of departure. She found a way to include Springfield, urban areas which many uh, folks in Amherst would not be in contact with. She brought she brought those communities together in her work. Young people, she was helping to develop the leadership. Of both today and tomorrow, she had a passion for young people, and she made no no, there was no apologies for that. Uh, She didn't see she didn't see life as as if it had to be her work. Uh, Her call to be who she was born to be came out in every sense. She brought together race, economics. Um, the other social and health factors, as well as the environment. That's womanism. That's womanism.
1: And in that regard, one of the shows that we did, you did, with Dee Shabazz focused on Juneteenth, and that's Mm -hmm. a memorable day and now a state holiday, a national holiday. It wasn't when we began speaking about it on this show and you began speaking about it on this show. And D. Shabazz, of course, as a scholar, a community activist, and a teacher uh, joined us for that conversation. Dan, could you cue up a bit of that conversation? Today, with our preview of the celebration of Bloomsday, this Wednesday, which, because it's that is June 16th, we now turn to the observation of Juneteenth. This is our Black in the Valley segment that we have every other Monday on the show. Let me turn the Microphone over to our co-host, uh, Professor Karly Tartakov. Our other co-host, Jacqueline Smith-Crooks, of course, is with us as well. The pleasure of the introductions of our special guests and the introductions for Juneteenth is yours, please, Professor Karly Tartakov.
9: Good morning. This year, Juneteenth will be celebrated as a new state holiday. And our guests, Anika Lopes, Drs. Dimitria, and Amilcar Shabazz, are our guests to tell us what we should know about this important holiday? They are no strangers to Black in the Valley, but I'm gonna reintroduce them to you. Anika is a milliner from a long-standing family of African and Indigenous descent of some who fought during the Civil War. Both Dee and Emilcar lived in Galveston, Texas, the last place that was told that their enslaved people were no longer considered to be enslaved. So let's just jump right in. Amilcar, will you start by telling
12: us what is Juneteenth? Juneteenth is a very special day. I'm gonna keep it real brief Hmm. and let others have uh, more time. Soldiers from units in the Civil War that came from this area were part of the liberation of the 200,000 plus people of African heritage in Texas. So even though the war ended in April with the Treaty of Appomattox in, in, in April of 1865, it took until June for the troops to actually get there. And the slaveholders were not letting anybody go, were not observing the, uh, even the turn up of the war until somebody came with bayonets, with guns, with uh, uh, the military force. And part of that military force were unit from the black units, like the, like the 54th, and uh, just to really make the point to, to these holdout slaveholders that it's over. We're, we're, the country is now moving in a new direction. You're coming back into the country. You got to get with the program. So it was a, uh, it, it, that's where slavery ended. It was in the in the military might and those black soldiers in uniforms that some of whom were even from here in Western Mass.
9: So we are going to be celebrating Juneteenth in Amherst and in the Valley. Tell us a little bit more about what we're going to see and do. Dee?
11: Yes. <laughs> Good morning. This year, as Amilcar had stated, you know, we're focused on the Civil War memorial plaques. And it's just a wonderful um, type of situation where you have our family who's from Texas, as you said, I'm actually the Galvestonian. a mill from Beaumont, which is about an hour and a half away. Um, that our family has come full circle, so to speak, with the bridges uh, Roberts Bateman family that was, as a mill car had stated, you know, part of that regiment. So it's really just, uh, you know, uh, serendipitous and uh, wonderful to have that as the center.
1: This is our Black in the Valley show. Our remembrance of Demetria D. Shabazz will continue right after this.
0: More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP find local news and local talk for the Valley.
5: It is critical that the investigation is not limited to federal violations of gender discrimination, but includes the alleged allegations of corruption, nepotism, abuse of power, and use of position to aid Miss Cunningham's personal business. These allegations actually require an investigation by a different body than a Title IX investigator.
0: Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP, news, information, and the
1: arts.
7: What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman.
1: Rutabagas, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe, and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department.
7: River Valley Co-op, wild about local, everyone is welcome.
0: I'm that guy. When you Google shoulder pain, my face pops up. But you don't have to be sidelined by pain anymore. Call QC Kinetics to learn more about biologic therapies. Don't let your joint pain keep you from doing the things you love. There's a new natural solution that patients are raving about. QC Kinetics. Let QC Kinetics help you improve your
12: quality of life.
0: Call QC Kinetics, 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP.
1: On this special, Black in the Valley, we remember Demetria D. Shabazz. Carly Tartikoff, long-time co-host of Black in the Valley. Remembrance that you wanted to share with listeners.
9: Yes. First, I'd like to say that I was surprised that D was as young as she was when she died. Because she always acted the role of a Wise elder with experiences that equipped her to support, mentor, teach the rest of us life lessons like be kind, be bold, be prepared, walk with others, be generous, be forgiving, be loving and dance with joy, and use your favorite soundtrack. It, um, here's a poem I found out true the obituary that she was also a poet, and I want to offer a poet, a poem, sorry. She was, D was, Dr. Demetria Shabazz was, just who we wanted to be, who we need more than anything else. Someone who spent her life's moment supporting others in search of a world where we could live together with each other and communicate who we were and what we wanted to be without domination, but with a Louisiana warmth and a heart as big as Texas. And we'll always remember her just the way Maya said we would for the way she made us feel about ourselves and everybody else.
1: Thank you, Carly. Uh, Dee Shabazz would be on this program regularly. She talked to us about Amherst Media and environmental issues in Juneteenth and Kwanzaa and Women's Day. She also was with us on the last day of the show mm-hmm. being hosted by the Reverend Dr. Jacqueline Smith-Crooks and Professor Carly Tartikoff. Dan, can you cue up mm-hmm. that tape? Let me uh, t- uh, turn to Professor Dimitri Shabazz and ask you for your thoughts about what Black in the Valley with uh, Carly and Jacqueline has meant to us here in the Valley.
11: Really important, um, I think to put it into perspective, these are, these, these two elders are culture workers, culture <sighs> activists that, that brought their skill, that brought their love, right, and their deep thinking to the black experience. And so it's not to be minimized, it is to be raised up and celebrated, and we will miss you. We know that it's gonna go on, we know that you'll be visiting, but we will miss your voices because it was sustained and it brought, I'm going to quote my my son, who was on your show uh, a few times, listening to and having been on the show myself, this is Ursa Shabazz, it has served as a safe space for people to speak openly and honestly against individualist system of the U.S. This is my my baby. It's (laughs) it's, It's been a point, it's been a point of connection as well, bringing to the forefront voices that have no amplifier anywhere else in the valley.
1: We are blessed to be joined by Emilkar Shabazz as well, husband of Dee Shabazz. Milkar, thank you for doing this. I know it's hard.
12: It's beautiful to um, you know, connect and um, reflect on uh, Dee's legacy. And um, just as you've said, how she made us all feel. And, um, and to hold that, that close to our hearts. I just want to um, express that there was um, a desire for a kind of community celebration of for her life. And so that will be taking place this Thursday, October 26th, um, which is her birthday. Hmm. Um, she would be um, uh, putting another year. She puts another year on the clock, 57. And... Um, and so we are gathering at the Unitarian Universalist Society of Amherst uh, Meeting House, 127 Pleasant Street. And i just give you a little taste. We'll, we'll be having drumming. we have a call for drummers to gather outside the church at 530. Uh, we will, uh, URSA will uh, pour out libations. And then from there, we will uh, go inside. We have poets, other poetry, besides Carly, we'll have... Uh, poems by Magdalena Gomez, the Poet Laureate of Springfield. We'll have uh, my colleague at UMass, uh, uh, Steve Tracy, on her Monica, giving us some amazing grace. And so come out, get some good food, enjoy some warm times, and reflect and connect. Thank you.
10: And celebrate the transformer. Yes. <laughs> yes.
5: This week's Shop Tuesday is Pristine Orientals. This Tuesday at 9 a.m., Pristine Orientals releases gift certificates for their rug cleaning service. Pristine Orientals' chemical-free rug cleaning process leaves no odor and no residue. Your rug gets a gentle bath. It's really the only way to treat a rug. And this Tuesday, you save 30%. Pristine Orientals Rug Cleaning, available this Shop Tuesday at 9 a.m. on the Shop 30 Store at whmp.com.
3: Careful consideration and compromise has gone into the House's version of the bill. First of all, the bill is about modernizing firearm
5: laws. Firearm laws in the state are really confusing because they've been updated multiple times. (laughs) And so the goal was to take all of those laws, streamline them, and make
3: one easy-to-follow bill. Sabadosa says she expects the Senate will come up with their own amendments. Then the differences will be worked out in a conference committee.
6: For today, look for a mixture of sunshine and clouds. It'll be breezy. Highs 56 to 60. Tonight, partly cloudy and chilly. Overnight lows 32 to 36. And they look for Tuesday, partly sunny. Highs around 60. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP.
3: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler.
0: This
6: is Talk the Talk
0: with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP.
1: Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. Buzz Eisenberg is off today. We welcome to the show Matthew Barlow, who is the humanities coordinator for the Lava Center in Greenfield. He is with us today. We want you to know about an event at the Lava Center tomorrow. We'll come back and learn more about the Lava Center. But first, the event tomorrow evening at 530 at the Lava Center. Matthew Barlow, what is it
8: and why is it? We're having an event, a panel discussion um, entitled Genealogical Research for Marginalized Groups. I um, will be moderating. Uh, the panelists are Orris Jenkins, who is the director of Musica Franklin, and David Brule from the Nolumbika project. Um, both of these men have done extensive genealogy work uh, into marginalized communities, in Oris's case, African-American and David's Indigenous. where there's not always sources, it's not easy to trace our lineage back. Um, So they're going to talk about their experiences, their expertise, um, their knowledge, and uh, it's going to be a fantastic discussion. It's part of a larger exhibit we have on right now concerning African-American families in Greenfield, and in a way it's also tied to a larger project we're working on um, which is called Indivisible. The basic premise of that is everyone has a story a piece of history worth sharing an idea too good to be hidden Um, and indivisible is largely focused on migrant farm workers in the valley but together with that is a series of podcasts and we actually have one dropping tomorrow with Oris as part of the indivisible hour which is the title of this podcast series
1: we are speaking with Matthew Barlow. He is the Humanities Coordinator for the Lava Center, telling us about the event tomorrow evening, beginning at 5.30, Genealogical Research for Marginalized Groups. Let's go back, and for those of us who could use this remedial lesson, what do you mean by genealogical
8: research? Well, I mean, this is about tracing who we are, where we're from, who our ancestors were. And I think, you know, in my case, not that I've done all any any research myself, but in my case, I'm Irish and French Canadian. So there are records going back centuries, at least from their time in North America, with my French family dating back to France in the 15th, 14th, I'm sure all the way back to the 10th centuries. Ireland may be a little bit more complicated due to the effects of imperialism and colonialism, and that's kind of where we are with, with African-American and indigenous families, you know, records were not kept. There's a lot of oral tradition to be dug into, um, and things like that. So, you know, it is about finding our roots, finding out who we are, where we come from. And is this specifically
1: about? I mean, when I say it, it was there or this, the gene- is this genealogical research focused on families in Greenfield in Western Massachusetts, or is is it broader than that?
8: I think it's broader than that. Um, so the panel actually comes out of an idea that sprung up at the opening of this black, these African-American families in Greenfield, uh, which would have been before my time at LAVA um, in early September. And uh, there was a woman from Springfield who was digging into her genealogy in terms of both African-American and indigenous. And, you know, she was coming across the kinds of problems that I, as an historian, would expect. Uh, in doing this kind of research, and so, you know, Orris, his ancestors, his family is from Georgia. Um, so there is a there's a much deeper, wider, I guess, applica- applicability to this than just Greenfield or Franklin County or Western Massachusetts. I'd like to ask you a question. You
1: are a historian. You you professor mm-hmm. of history for many many years. I. Uh, this may be a remedial question or one that is really not very, uh, uh, smart, but I'll try anyway. How do you do genealogical research when records, written records don't exist for the most part? Uh, well, first, because I mean, in, in particular, I'm thinking of the, to two of the marginalized groups that you just mentioned which is in uh, indigenous people in the United States and people who were enslaved
8: yeah well first there's no such thing as a stupid question and I think you know th- this is this is the heart of the matter right like when there are no written records how do you go about doing history it's not just genealogical history it's history in general you have to learn how to read other sorts, other sources as text. I mean, I know it sounds very um eggheady and professorial. Well, if I can sound not very smart, you can sound eggheady. it's okay. <laughs> but you know, for example, in one of my classes this week, we watched a film and I'm encouraging my students to watch that film as an historical text to read it, to learn what the message of that film was in terms of its propaganda value, its storytelling value, things like that. So in the case of like doing this kind of genealogy research oral tradition i think is part and parcel and i don't like I'm, I'm speaking just from my own experience here david and Oris will no doubt have more to say about this tomorrow night but you have oral tradition you have burial records sometimes you know sometimes you can just find the cemetery um you know that's a little bit more complicated with slave cemeteries in the deep south you know, I was part of a, an attempt to rehabilitate one in Alabama, and there's, there's no headstones, you know, there's just a general idea of where, uh, where a body was buried. So it does get very complicated. It does get convoluted, and I think it requires real creativity to do this. I just saw the uh, burial uh, film
1: uh, on Netflix that was made from Jonathan Har's, uh article in the New Yorker, uh, and there is a scene of a field, and one of the characters is explaining why they're there, and they're saying, "This is a cemetery. This is a cemetery for persons who were enslaved. There was nothing except grass, and it was. It is, in fact, a really moving scene. One of the many in that film, and I'm wondering again, n- no headstones, no markers." people who were disappeared or attempted to be disappeared when their lives ended and yet somehow you as a historian in this panel managed to bring them back to life in some ways i'm wondering if
8: you could reflect on that for us well well it really just comes down to pure wizardry wizardry um i think that's just it you know slaves were buried largely in unmarked graves and all across this continent, my homeland of Canada in, well, both American continents, the United States, all through Latin America, South America, the indigenous were massacred and left, their bodies just left by, by the, the, the massacres. I mean, there was a massacre a couple of miles away from where I'm sitting right now in, in Turner's Falls. And so how do you get at that? How do you know who fell, who was felled there? How do you know who was buried in these slave cemeteries? And in Alabama anyway, the, the, the elders of the African-American community that I talked to and, and worked a little bit with were certain. They knew who was buried there. They, they knew through mostly family stories and sometimes, you know, there's a bit of conjecture involved. So you can find, for example, when it comes to enslaved people prior to 1865, you might find a bill of sale somewhere in a, in a record, in an archive somewhere. You might find that this woman was sold from, by this, this owner to that owner. So she moved from, I think of an example I can think of, from Mississippi to northern Alabama along the Tennessee River. And then you, she disappears from the record. But your last known record of her is on that that plantation in North Alabama. So you start to think about maybe how to go about finding her or finding her descendants. Um, in the case of, and I don't know if this is what Oris and David will get into, but in the case of this Alabama um, slave cemetery, there's also DNA. You know, some of the some of the elders I worked with have been able to use dna from other i suppose other cemeteries in the area and themselves to kind of triangulate who might be buried in that particular one in wildwood just outside of florence alabama so it is complicated it's convoluted um i think that I don't have the expertise that Oris and and David have. You know, Oris has a book coming out next year on exactly this, you know, tracing his ancestry back to Georgia. Um, And on his website, which is orisjenkins.net, I believe. Sorry, orisjenkins.com. He actually has a genealogy blog there that explains how he goes about this. So, 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 uh, Matthew Barrow,
1: Humanities Coordinator at the Lava Center, uh, tell us again, who are the two individuals, the two experts on the panel tomorrow?
8: Right. So David Bruhl is um, the director of the Nolan Nolambika Project here in Greenfield-Turners Falls, and uh, has extensive, extensive, deep knowledge of the indigenous history of our valley. And uh, Oris Jenkins, who is the director of music at Franklin, um, and a absolutely brilliant musician um, who's also done extensive genealogy research. So again, David is indigenous, Af- Oris is African-American, and these are the communities that you know, largely do get left out of, well, history, frankly. Um, I was going to say genealogical history, but history. Um, and it's something that I believe in passionately that we need to know these stories. All right. I want to know more about that. What inspired this event and what
1: inspired the uh, uh, exhibit that is ongoing at the Lava Center tomorrow night? And again, for the listeners just joining us, the title of the presentation tomorrow is Genealogical Research for Marginalized People. What was the impetus?
8: So there's a few things that work there. There is the exhibit on African-American families in Greenfield. That was compiled by Carol Ailman, who is um, of the... Greenfield Historical Society. I know her from my time at Greenfield Community College um, when I was the interim dean of humanities there and she's been doing this research for I don't know how long years and years and years so we have a very small glimpse of her research at the Lava Center right now. I would like to circle back with Carol in the next year or so to kind of expand upon that but this also grows out of You know just just our general knowledge that digging into genealogical history is not always straightforward it's uh, it can get very complicated You know it's one thing when you can look at ship manifests that came from ireland to to my case montreal in the 19th century but what do you do when you get back beyond that ship what do you do when you get back into ireland searching for your ancestors so i think this is this is part of it. The other part was simply a woman who came to the launch of the, um, the exhibit at, at Lava Center who was doing this kind of genealogical research and was running into the kinds of problems, I think, that I mean, all genealogical researchers run into. Um, you know, throughout my career, I get random emails from people who are doing genealogy and their ancestors are in the parts of well, mostly Quebec where i've written about and so you know I, I i offer to help them kind of trace well i know about this character i know what he did here and i know where he moved on to and like I mean, one character in particular ended up in in on the michigan peninsula you know from from rural south eastern quebec so there's a lot of that yeah and it, it's it, a it, more complicated it, with these communities and it
1: is complicated i mean i for my family i i have asked uh Uh, someone I know who who supplied me with some genealogical research on our family, and it runs into a stone wall of the pogroms in Eastern Mm -hmm. Europe and the destruction of all the records about all the Jews. Exactly. Exactly. We are speaking with Matthew Barlow. He is the Humanities Coordinator for the Lava Center. We are speaking about the event tomorrow evening, beginning at 5.30. Genealogical Research for Marginalized Groups will be back in just a moment.
0: Listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. The Western Mass Business Show with local Dynamo, Tara Brewster. Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2. Only on WHMP.
4: Brought to you by Business West. The vital business news in Western Mass is in Business West.
0: The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP.
3: Today and every day, millions of people do business with co-ops, food co-ops, credit unions, workers' co-ops, farmer co-ops. Go co-op and together we can build resilient, inclusive communities.
4: In 1918, four farmers with $50 started the Greenfield Farmers Cooperative Exchange. Today, the Greenfield Farmers Cooperative Exchange is owned and run by over 1,000 local farmers. And everyone is welcome to shop their stock of 50,000 farm and garden and pet products.
13: At Greenfield Savings Bank, one of the things we love about living in the valley is all the locally grown food that's available here. For more than 25 years, a local nonprofit called CESA, which stands for Community Involved in Sustaining Agriculture, has been promoting locally grown food and supporting farms, farmers markets, and food businesses in our valley. And to support CESA's mission, Greenfield Savings Bank is giving new customers a CESA canvas tote bag as a thank you gift when they open a new free GSB checking account. There are no monthly fees, no transaction fees, and you get free online banking, free e-statements, free debit card, and free GSB mobile app, including depositing checks from your mobile device. Our existing customers can also get a CISA Canvas tote bag when they enroll in GSB's free mobile banking or sign up for e-statements. So join GSB and show your support for locally grown food and local banking.
0: Get your CISA Canvas tote bag thank you gift from Greenfield Savings Bank. See bank or visit greenfieldsavings.com for full details. Member FDIC, member DIF. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP.
1: We continue our conversation with Matthew Barlow, who is the humanities coordinator at the Lava Center in Greenfield. We are talking specifically about the event tomorrow evening, Tuesday evening, 530, Genealogical Research for Marginalized Groups. I would like to know, Matthew Barlow, if you would be kind enough to to, uh, fill in for something I have been utterly remiss about in this conversation, which is for you to tell us what the Lava Center is. And then we'll get to where yeah, it is sure. so people can get there tomorrow evening. But uh, what is the Lava Center?
8: So we are in. What?
6: He's still speaking. He's not. Yeah, all of a sudden something started.
12: What do you
8: want me to do you this now for almost three almost four years um, going back to 2019, 2020 uh, right before the pandemic. Okay, uh, you were cut off there, not
1: your uh, not on your part. Could you just go back a bit and re- repeat for us what you just said about what the Lompa Center is?
8: Yeah, of course it is. We are a humanities and an arts incubator in Greenfield, at 324 Main Street. We um, are also a community art space. We have uh, galleries in terms of both arts and humanities. Our programming is centered around, well, really, arts and humanities writ large. Um, you know, for example, we're moving into the climate crisis in November, um, looking at you know the, the effect of climate change in Western Massachusetts, and around the world, quite frankly. Um, admission is free for all our events. We accept donations, of course. Um,
1: and how, how does the Lava Center support itself? I mean, do, uh, contri- contributions at
8: the door are not going to keep a nonprofit no. like this in business. No, grants. We are funded generously by Mass Humanities, amongst other um, funding sources, Uh we are lucky in that you know we are now a known entity and granting agencies know what we do so that helps drastically you know it helps greatly and uh, we're forever grateful for that uh, tomorrow evening
1: uh, genealogical research for marginalized groups uh will focus on i take it uh uh, uh formerly enslaved uh uh the ants the the descendants of formerly enslaved persons as well and it's indigenous persons are there other marginalized groups that will be the focus of this uh, presentation tomorrow i think
8: we'll probably leave it at that that's the expertise of david and, and Oris. um you know we'll see what kinds of questions we get i'll be moderating so i can you know i can really only speak to my own roots which are irish in terms of like difficult genealogies but i think that those are the two Main ones. I think these are the ones that, you know, African Americans and Indigenous folk tend to get removed from the historical record, and this is one way to combat that to make these histories visible. While we have the pleasure of your company, can you
1: tell us a bit more about other upcoming program in addition to the one tomorrow night on genealogical research for marginalized groups? Other uh, presentations or programming going on at the mm-hmm. Lavin
8: Center uh, in the near future. In in, in November, uh, we will be launching an exhibit of crowdsourced photographs of climate change damage in the valley this year. You know, the impetus from that comes from what happened to our farms through the late frost, the flooding, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, We will be performing um, climate change plays towards the end of November, uh, two nights. Um, There will be a panel discussion surrounding that. You know we have writers read going on i mean all the details can be found on our website which is um, thelavacenter.org we have an events calendar there that'll tell you everything we have going on Uh, we have programming usually four to five nights a week we are open every day of the week um, monday to sunday and uh, we also have a small cafe in place now as well you know so we we and november too also is also um, a write, writing month, writer's month so we'll have writing sessions at the lava center all throughout the month
1: okay and so that people can who have not been to the lava center yet but will do themselves the pleasure of coming to the presentation uh, tuesday evening tomorrow evening the lava center is located where 324 main street greenfield massachusetts where there is actually plenty of parking and there this event is free and open to the public Yes, sir. sir. We leave it there. We've been speaking with Matthew Barlow. He is the humanities coordinator for the Lava Center. Tomorrow evening, 530, genealogical research for marginalized groups. Matthew Barlow, thank you so much for being with us today. Really appreciate your time, and we really appreciate the Lava Center.
8: Thank you so much, Bill.
0: This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
3: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The man accused of stabbing a woman in the neck with a set of needle-nose pliers in Northampton pled not guilty. 41-year-old Russell Scott Mayo was arraigned Friday in Northampton District Court. Mayo was accused of stabbing a woman in the neck outside of the Northampton Police Department Thursday afternoon. The Northwestern DA's office filed a motion to have him deemed too dangerous to release on bail. The motion will be considered by a judge on October 27th. The victim is expected to survive. UMass faculty and students are working to alleviate food insecurity and support healthy eating habits through produce prescription programs, linking the medical field to local farms and the food supply chain. Through the program, primary care providers can give eligible low-income participants prescriptions for free, fresh, local produce to be picked up monthly at local health centers. UMass received three $500,000 grants for three years from the USDA to fund the prescription programs. Massachusetts State House is working to update its firearms regulations and State Rep. Lindsay Sabadosa said lots of careful consideration and compromise has gone into the House's version of the bill. First of all, the bill is about modernizing firearm laws. Firearm laws in the state
5: are really confusing because they've been updated multiple times. (laughs) And so the goal
3: was to take all of those laws, streamline them and make one easy to follow bill. Sabadosa says she expects the Senate will come up with their own amendments. Then the differences will be worked out in a conference committee.
6: For today, look for a mixture of sunshine and clouds. It'll be breezy, highs 56 to 60. Tonight, partly cloudy and chilly. Overnight lows 32 to 36. And then look for Tuesday, partly sunny. Highs around 60. I'm 22 New Storm Team meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP.
3: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler.
4: Find local news and local talk for the Valley
2: it wasn't necessary and it probably wasn't even appropriate on the one hand i don't want that to sound like i don't support schools i have a long history of supporting schools certainly longer than any one of those city councilors
0: where the heart of the pioneer valley lives 1015 and 1400 whmp news information and the arts
7: what is the use of a book thought alice without pictures and conversation. And now, let us add dance. Momix presents Alice, a Momix interpretation of Alice's adventures in Wonderland that sends you flying down a rabbit hole into a seamless blend of illusion, acrobatics, magic, and whimsy. The UMass Fine Arts Center presents Momix, Alice, Wednesday, October 25th at UMass. It's hard to picture a more imaginative interpretation of Lewis Carroll's story. Momix fills the stage with a marvelously dizzying and inventive flow of movement and activities. Get tickets now at the UMass Fine Arts Center website. Momix in a new interpretation of Alice. Wednesday, October 25th at UMass.
3: Today and every day, millions of people do business with co-ops, food co-ops, credit unions, workers co-ops, energy co-ops, farmer co-ops, go co-op and together we can build resilient, inclusive communities
4: like the Leverett Village Co-op, a gem in the woods, providing community and groceries, crafts, beer and wine, emphasizing local for nearly 40 years. Find more
3: co-ops at Valley Cooperative Business Association, VCBA.coop.
9: If they ask me, I could
2: write a book.
1: And this is Writer's Block with Megan Zinn. It is actually kind of a confusing title in this way, Megan. <laughs> it is a block of time for writers. It is for writers who have managed to not suffer from oh, writer's yeah, block and bring us, new, <laughs> bring us those authors and their exciting new uh, books. The honor and pleasure of the introduction of our author this week, your author this week. The microphone's yours.
14: Wonderful. Well, my guest is Kim Coleman Foote. Welcome, Kim.
15: Thank you for having me. It's a
14: pleasure. So Kim's fiction and essays have appeared in um, a number of publications, including Best American Short Stories 2022, The Rumpus and Prairie Schooner. And um, we're here to talk about Coleman Hill, which is her first book, her first novel. Uh, Kim will be at Odyssey Bookshop to talk about Coleman Hill on Wednesday, this Wednesday, October 25th at 7 p.m. And you can find out more on their website, odysseybks.com. So Kim, tell us about Coleman Hill. What's the basis of the book?
3: So
15: the book is actually inspired by my mother's family and looking at their great great migration journey coming up from Alabama and Florida to Vauxhall, New Jersey. So it's a great migration journey about the suburbs Mm. in the North. You typically hear about Harlem, Detroit, Chicago. But this is a kind of different experience coming to suburban New Jersey. And certain traumas happened in my family Mm. that reverberated throughout the generations. And I wanted to explore the roots of the trauma, the roots of behavior in my family, why some people treated others, others horribly. Mm-hmm. And so um, the book actually came about because of an assignment that I had during my MFA program way, way back in 2004. Uh, I was tasked with writing a story from a photograph mm. and I chose one of my grandfather's three sisters as little girls. And The middle one's voice literally spoke to me. Uh, when I write fiction, I, I I see movies in my head, I see visuals, and I have to create words to, to explain those visuals. But her voice just came to me and she said, I ain't afraid of that man or his camera. You know, and in this photo, she she's grasping this dog, she has this fierce gaze, and her two sisters on either side look terrified. So I was always like, What is the what is the story behind this photo? What happened? And this woman, this aunt was someone, you know, she was always vilified in the family stories that I've been hearing since I was a little girl growing up in Jersey. And so, what came out over the next couple of minutes, because her voice just kept coming at me yeah. um, was a backstory and how she was hurting. She was grieving for her daddy who had died and um, her mother was mean to her, you know? Um, and so I was thinking afterwards, wow, could this be the reason why she was so quote evil as an adult? Uh-huh.
14: Yeah. Which actually makes sense because children are usually not evil. It's usually a reason exactly. behind that kind of behavior <laughs> and personality. Um, it's and it's <laughs> interesting that um, um, Bill was just speaking with Matthew Barlow about um, researching Genealogy for Marginalized Groups, because that's been a key yes. part of your writing. Um, yes. So can you read read us um, a bit of Coleman Hill?
15: Yes, I'm going to read an excerpt from uh, when my great-grandmother comes up to New Jersey. Her husband has come up before her, and she's seeing him for the first time. Okay. The gym you found in New Jersey wasn't the same man who left Alabama. When you got to the Pennsylvania Station in Newark, You ain't recognized him until he took off his bowler hat and waved it at you and the children. Gone was the overalls, the ill-fitting gray church jacket, the unruly puff of hair like his pappy's. He wore a tailored pinstripe suit that highlighted the honey color of his eyes. The jacket was flipped open to show off a watch chain dangling from his vest pocket. His slicked back hair reflected the sunlight just as much as his shoes. He leaned against the cart hitched to a horse, which you later learned he'd borrowed from his brother. You notice colored and white ladies alike sneaking glances as they passed, and your chest puffed out. For the first time, you realize what all them girls back in Houston County, Alabama used to see in him. And I'll stop there.
14: Wonderful, wonderful. I'm speaking with um, Kim Coleman Foote about her new book, Coleman Hill. Um, I'm I'm really interested in how you capture the voice of, um, in this case, in the narrator, at least in this part. Um, How do you, is it something that you just feel um, felt historically authentic? Or did you do some research in what her voice and manner of speaking may have been like?
15: So, like I said, I grew up hearing stories from my family. And so my grandmother um, and her my so my grandmother and her siblings, they they came up from Alabama when they were very young, but they still had a thick Alabama ah, accent. Okay. Right. So my my grandparents, all their siblings. And so I I had these accents in my head <laughs> since I was young. Um and I'm also very good with like voices and the accents. And so, you know, that that for me came pretty pretty easily. And, you know, this particular section, it's narrated in um, African-American dialect, yeah. which is actually what I grew up speaking at home. Mm-hmm. You know, so I spoke that way at home. And, you know, there are Southern inflections in that way of talking, um, you know, but when I went to school, uh, I had English classes in school yeah. and we would learn standard English, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but on the playground, the kids would speak, mm-hmm. you know, the same way that we spoke at home. So for me, it was just, the just revert, you know, reverting to the natural way that I Book spoke oh. growing up. All right.
14: Um, and you know, the book is described, um, um, I don't know if this is your word, this your your decision or the publisher's, but it's described as bi- biomythography, which is a word coined yes. by Audre Lorde. Um, yes. Tell us what that could, means. Could you say that word again? Biomythography. Okay. Am I saying that right? Yes. Good. Yes. Um, <laughs> so tell us
15: what that means in terms of Coleman Hill. So it's actually something that I press for um, because that's the way that I saw the book, um, how I defined it. uh, Because when I was working on the book, I was like, Well, I don't really know what to call this. It's not (laughs) exactly fiction. It's not exactly nonfiction. Um, And I couldn't think of any examples of anyone who'd done this. And then I realized like, Oh, yeah, Alex Haley did this kind Mm -hmm. of with roots, you know, Mm -hmm. where he uses imagination with his genealogical research to, to create his character, characters and situations with his family. Um, but he called this practice faction. <laughs> and I just didn't like that no, word. <laughs> um, and so I remembered reading um, Zami. Mm -hmm. which is Audre Lorde's memoir when I was around the same time I started the, the book in my MFA program. And she uses this term to refer to a work of literature that combines many sources to create a modern myth, a new history. And I was like, that's exactly what I'm doing, because I'm bringing together the oral histories from my family. With my own genealogical research, which you know, when I started out, it wasn't intended for a book; that was just my hobby. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I'm combining that also with my fiction skills to create this kind of new history, this new myth, you know, of my family. Um, but not to not to be like intentionally misleading right. about my family, but to really try to fill in the gaps that you know I I didn't know. I don't know why ultimately some of my relatives treated each other this way. Mm-hmm. I don't know, you know. Um, Again, what what the experience of my great grandmother seeing my great grandfather in New Jersey, you know, kind of the city city impression, you know, that she got from him. So I had to invent um, these things to really, really build a story.
14: Yeah. How do you approach that process of inventing, um, you know, to, to broadening out the stories that you do know and inventing it? Um, you talked a little bit about it when you first saw the picture of your of your um your your father's, your grandfather's um, siblings, correct? Sisters, um, yes, And sisters. And um, can you tell us a bit more about how you go about filling in that story? Um, is it a uh, a process where you feel like, as you talked about when you saw the picture, that, it, that her voice just came to you? Is yes. it more like that? Or is it a combination of also kind of doing yeah. some research to fill it in?
15: Yeah, well, that's where the magic happens. Mm-hmm. Writing, because say, like with the other... Well, all the rest of the book, because that was the only one that came out naturally like that, where mm-hmm. the the whole entire narrative just came out in about 10 minutes. Um, but for the rest of the book, I, I used a lot of the photographs as prompts in mm-hmm. my family um, and the photographs are uh, also printed in the book. Um, yeah. If you get the print book, not the audio book, unfortunately. <laughs> Um, but I, this is where I use my, my visualizing skills because I would look at those photos and, and try to think about the scenarios behind them. So a lot of the photographs, the taking of the photographs is actually referenced in the book itself. Um, and so I would like, for example, one of my great grandfathers, the only thing that I know about him was his name and that he died of lockjaw. Mm. And wow. whether that was getting cut on a rusty nail one story, a rusty pipe, the next story, he was at work, he was doing construction on a movie theater, they say. Um, that's all I knew about him. And so I had to think about who was he as a person, who was he as a father, a husband, a son, you know? Um, what did he even look like? I have, you know, uh, one document, it was like a, um, a war registration, hmm. uh, military registration form that I think described his height and his skin color. You know, so little details like that from the government records. I knew when he was born from the government, about when he was born from the government records. But, like, who was he as a person, right? So I would use my visualizing skills to imagine him in a scene with my great-grandmother. You know, how would they be talking together? How would they be, you know, having a conversation before going to bed together? So, yeah, that's basically what I did.
1: Yeah. Bill, Bill, you have a question. So, Kim Coleman Foote, I, I love your description of visualizing. And I'm wondering if uh, something that other authors have said to us on the show applies, and that is that when they have these characters, they're not really inventing dialogue. It's more like taking transcription of the (laughs) characters talking to each other. And I'm wondering if that's something that applies to what you've described as visualization.
15: Definitely, Um, and like I said, there's magic because you know sometimes you you write something and then you know you look back and you read it and you're like i wrote that How, i don't even remember kind of writing this thing like you know it seems like almost someone else someone someone else wrote it and you know, especially since this is about my family, it's deeply personal. I feel like I was just a big antenna and yeah. channeling. You know, like again, nothing ever came to me so much like the words. You know, the words, the words. I'm speaking directly. That that section is actually um, narrated from the first person point of view. Most of the book is narrated from the third person, but I'm doing all different types of points of view. Um, But, you know, I felt I was definitely channeling (laughs) something beyond me, you know, um, when I was writing these scenes.
14: All right, so I'm speaking with Kim Coleman Foot um, about her new novel and um, uh, Coleman Hill. And Kim will be at Odyssey Bookshop to talk about Coleman Hill on Wednesday, October 25th at 7 p.m. Um, another question I had you I, I saw an Instagram, a little Instagram um, bit about um, your experience of finding your family in the National Archives for the first time. Yes, tell us a little bit about yes. that experience.
15: Um, so I literally screamed <laughs> when I found them <laughs> and I like startled the person next to me. Um, because I didn't think my family would mm-hmm. be in the records, honestly. Um, because you know, I was looking at these official government records census records, which is essentially a tally, you know, a population tally of, you know, the country. But I didn't think they'd be in these records because they were poor people. They're black people, they're poor, they're quote, not educated, you know. Um and I was like, Why would my family? Why would anyone be interested in recording them? You know. Um, and then I found them. I found the first census record I found was from 1900 Alabama, which was very, still very, very rural. Mm-hmm. You know, um, even today. And I literally screamed because yeah. I was just so amazed that they were there and then you know i looked at all the file cabinets in the national archives this was back in the day before ancestry.com you know people are familiar with that Mm -hmm. um this was even before google right so you couldn't like just go to a web Mm -hmm. browser and type in a name and you know newspaper articles all the stuff is digitized nothing was digitized back then and so you had to actually go to a library or you know repository get a microfilm, microfilm scroll through the microfilm it was hours and hours of intensive labor and so I looked at all those file cabinets of of census records and I just got so excited. I was like, well, where else is my family? And I just quickly amassed so many records, you know, where my family had been listed.
14: Uh. That's such an exciting process for a, uh, for a researcher. And I, I'm remembering yes. all the times I got a headache from looking at microfilm and microfiche. <laughs> um, but we're going <laughs> to yes. um, go a break. And when we come back, we'll be talking more with Kim Coleman Foote about her book, Coleman
2: Hill.
0: More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Hi, Tom Hartman here. Be sure to join me noon to 3 Eastern
14: time, okay. Monday through Friday, so, right here on the Tom Hartman program. Oh, bio, bio, although, although Kim would be better, on bio Mythography
0: 1400, join me noon to 3 Eastern time, really? well, what Monday through Friday, do, um, right here on the Tom Hartman program. Are there other W-H-M-P. books um, that you can think
14: of that you would describe that way? I'm curious to find more. Mm-hmm. Ah, Interesting.
7: What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid oh, eater, grocery shopper, and co-op oh, that, member. That's kind Who of the same it.
1: thing. Rutabagas, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its oh. way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe, and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department.
7: River Valley Co op, Wild About Local. Everyone is welcome.
1: When
11: your child is struggling with depression, anger, school issues, or anxiety, getting them the care they need all in one place can make a world of difference. ServiceNet offers you options talk therapy for both your child and your family, medication, behavioral strategies. ServiceNet therapists and our psychiatry team work together to help your child feel better. At ServiceNet, we have your back call Servicenet at 584-6855. The care you need
6: is right here, all in one place, at Servicenet. For complete contest rules for WHMP, please visit WHMP's website at whmp.com and click on the Contest and Rules tab. Take
0: WHMP and news from the Pioneer Valley with you everywhere. Download the TuneIn Radio app and search for WHMP. It's free, it's easy, and it's wherever you are. WHMP on TuneIn Radio. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP.
1: And this is our segment, Writer's Block, with editor and writer Megan Zinn, who has with her and us today Kim Coleman-Foot, who will be at the Odyssey Bookshop for a reading and signing and a Q&A this Wednesday at 7 o'clock. Her new book is titled Coleman Hill. Let me turn the microphone back over to Megan Zinn. Um, before
14: we get back into talking about this or the meat of the book, um, I was really curious. This is the second book published by SJP Lit, which is Sarah Jessica Parker's publishing imprint, which I did not know that she had. Um, do you know how it came about that she chose your manuscript?
15: I actually don't. <laughs> That's an interesting question. <laughs> um yeah, I actually don't, but my agent submitted it to Zando, which is the publisher. Mm-hmm. And I was actually interested in my my current editor, Erin Wicks. Um, you know, and editors move around so much, I had no idea where Erin was. So she had um, come to a reading that I did in Brooklyn several years ago. And I actually read from my second novel that Zanda will publish, which was about the slave trade in Ghana, West Africa, looking at women's stories. It's set in the 18th century and present day. And Erin had fallen in love with what I read, and then she hunted me down, oh, you know, saying like, oh, I love what you read, but the book wasn't finished at that point. And so I always remembered Erin and I said, "You know, we need to send the second manuscript to Erin to Coleman Hill and um, it just so happened that Aaron was at Zando um, with Sarah Jessica. Oh, so I know that that's the process. My agent, you know, th- this was one of several publishers that my agent sent the manuscript to. Um, but yeah, I have to ask Sarah Jessica how, what was that process like, yeah, how yeah. they chose. Yes.
14: That'd be really interesting. Um, so during, the, during yes. the break, we were talking a little bit more about bio.
1: I just want to know, you're on a first name Barrett's basis of Sarah Jessica. Jessica. That's totally <laughs> <You> cool. <know. laughs>
14: Do you yes. have to go look at her closets? <laughs> right. uh, that, that's the first thing I would ask, was just to see her clothes. Um, so, we, we were talking about, um, during the break a little bit more about the concept of biomythography. Um, and, yes. um, and we were talking about the difference between what, what you would call biomythography and just kind of basic historical fiction. Can you talk a bit about how you see that, um, that difference?
15: Yes, I mean, I would say with historical fiction, um, you know, all these are our labels, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes labels don't really mean anything, Um, and you can have so many, you know, intersections between them. But um, I would say the difference with a biomythography, as I see it personally, is the fact that, um, you know, it's that modern myth, new history. Um, that Audre Lorde talks about, and also the combination of the many sources. Um, I think it's you know it depends on what the intent is. You know, if you're writing historical fiction, just say, oh well, you know, this was like an interesting period in history. Um, you know, I just want to highlight there's a story. I mean, there's stories that happened. Human beings create stories, yeah. right? So it doesn't matter when they they occurred. But if you if your intent is you know maybe you're looking at history in a new way for example you know like the the Brid- Bridgerton series mm. you know looking reinventing kind of history, um, or like what I'm doing you know again which is trying to do almost like a forensic psychology you know on my family really trying to fill in these really? gaps you know for um, understanding their behavior um, I think that's what distinguishes a biomethography. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
12: I'd be interested
1: to know, did you learn something about your family? I don't mean facts, but insights into who they were and how they lived by doing this. And if so, what?
15: Oh, yes. Yes, indeed. Um, One that comes to mind is um, I didn't understand why my great grandmother hated my grandmother, her daughter-in-law, so much. Hmm. Um, To the extent that she kicked her out of the house and did not let her raise her children. And my grandfather apparently did nothing to stop that. So that was a major rift that that happened Mm -hmm. in my family. And um, I originally thought that it was due to colorism because my great grandmother was very light skinned. My grandmother was very dark skinned. Um, And then as I was writing the the book, I learned that my great grandmother actually wanted my grandmother's sister for her son and her sister is even darker. You know, so I was like, oh, this this doesn't add up right and obviously people can be have contradictions and everything but what what is it about this and so then i realized that there was something else about my grandmother's personality that was probably at odds with you know my great grandmother and i was like i don't know ultimately if this is true but it was like one of those aha moments where i was like oh could it have been this and it made me see like go even deeper into my great grandmother's psychology
14: Really interesting. Um, and so I'm speaking with Kim Coleman Foote, and we're talking about her book, Coleman Hill. Um, what, are, what are you currently working on now? You, you said you have um, your second book um, is coming out. Tell us a bit more about that.
15: Yeah, so it's called Saltwater Sister, and it's actually um, it's actually a legal adult right now. I've been working on it for since 1999, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it basically comes out of um, I was on a study abroad program in Ghana when I was in college, and I learned um, about these slave castles in West Africa mm. that were built originally by the Portuguese in the 1400s, and they are still there. And to hear the stories about how female captives in particular um, were treated at these places, even before the Middle Passage. Mm-hmm. So you hear always, you know, now about the Middle Passage and the slave ships going across the Atlantic, and obviously the experience of slavery in the Americas. But even before they got to the slave ship, there was all this, You know journey that people went on and a lot of people didn't even make it to that that coast you know to these slave castles and so i wanted to talk about the women's experiences and also um, i did get a fulbright fellowship Mm. to go back to ghana for about a year and do research so the novel is set in elmina the town of elmina where you have the oldest and largest of the the slave trading castles And I'm looking at the period where the Dutch were there, Mm -hmm. Um, the Dutch Mm -hmm. were major players in the slave trade, which a lot of people don't know, especially here. We always think about the British, Mm -hmm. but the Dutch, you know, especially um, I'm again from New Jersey, you know, which was, you know, part of the New Amsterdam, New Netherlands, Mm -hmm. you know, so we have a lot of Dutch um, remnants, you know, here in this area. And so looking at that, and then also when I went on my Fulbright, I was seeing a lot of repercussions of the slave trade that, you know, people there didn't seem to be aware of. And so, you know, it kind of brought up this whole idea of this never forget, right? Yeah. Because when you go to the slave castle, they all have these plaques saying, never again, never again. And I'm like, well, no, actually, this could happen again because we're one, forgetting the history, you know, whether that's intentional or not. Um, and if you forget the history, I feel that you can easily repeat it because yeah, you forget for all the sure. tragedies and horrors and abuses that occurred. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you become in a position where, well, well, I'm right, I'm justifying, yeah. you know, the, again, this treatment of people. Yeah. Um, yeah. So We're going to have. Uh, oh yeah, we, do,
14: we we do have to finish up there. There's so much to talk okay. to you about. But um, yes. so Kim, um, Kim Coleman Foot will be at Odyssey Bookshop on Wednesday, October 25th at 7 p.m. talking about Coleman
15: Hill. Thank
2: you for being yes. here, Kim.
1: And thank you.
15: Thank you again.
2: Whatever the season, something fun is happening at the Hitchcock Center for the Environment.
7: From home energy efficiency workshops to
2: birding classes and nature walks. We have hands-on activities happening all year long, whether you're 2 or 92. The Hitchcock Center has an opportunity for you to connect with our natural world. Come visit us at our new location, the Hitchcock Center, 845 West Street in Amherst. For more information, visit hitchcockcenter.org.
4: Would you like a better world? It's as easy as
0: grabbing a hammer and building a home. Pioneer Valley Habitat for Humanity builds strength, stability, and self-reliance through affordable homeownership in Hampshire and Franklin County. It's not a handout, it's a hand up. Habitat homes are built with donations of material, land, and services. Future homeowners and volunteers create a partnership with Habitat for Humanity to build a home, strengthen our neighborhoods, and create a legacy for our community. Help transform the world. Volunteer and support Pioneer Valley Habitat for Humanity pvhabitat.org. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls, WHMP.com on Northampton Radio Group Station.
2: It's 11 o'clock.